2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be discussing this fascinating new book from Cambridge University Press titled... Propaganda in Autocracies, Institutions, Information and the Politics of Belief, written by Dr. Aaron Baggett-Carter and Dr. Brett Carter, the latter of whom I have with me on the podcast today to tell us all about this book that does a whole bunch of things. Um, It creates a massive global data set of autocratic propaganda. It then does a bunch of interesting analysis of this and other sources to figure out how dictatorships, how autocracies use propaganda um, across different, for different reasons and different ways. Anyway, this is kind of everything you could ever want to know about how propaganda works in autocracies and why. So Brett, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about the book.
1: Great. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks so much uh, for the kind invitation and for the kind words uh, about the book as well.
2: Very happy to. Um, Before we get into the book itself, though, could you please introduce yourself and your co author, Aaron, a little bit and explain why you wrote the book and why you wrote it together?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, So um, I'm an assistant professor of political science and international relations uh, at the University of Southern California, uh, a Hoover Fellow. At Stanford University's Hoover Institution uh, and an affiliate at Stanford Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, Erin um, is roughly has a, has the same CV. She's also um, an assistant professor at uh, USC uh, and a fellow at uh, Stanford Hoover Institution and uh, its Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law as well. Um, so, you know, we we decided to write the book. Um, I suppose that you know it has its origins. In a series of uh, conversations um, a few years ago, when we realized just how differently uh, the propaganda apparatuses and the two parts of the world that we knew best, in my case, Central Africa, in Aaron's case, China, um, how profoundly different uh, they look to readers. Um, So the Republic of Congo uh, is... um, uh africa's you know third or fourth uh leading oil producer if one were to look at its oil production uh, on a per capita basis it's on par with say libya iran iraq major oil producers um and also uh you know due to uh senior uh or mismanagement by uh senior officials and the government routinely experiences fuel shortages and, and it turns out the propaganda apparatus Actually covers these fuel shortages, tells them or uh, tells readers about them, um, which is to say that the propaganda apparatus routinely um, concedes uh, the regime's shortcomings, and, and obviously there are many. But it does so, right, to to try to um, you know, to build up some capacity, some kind of credibility, to persuade citizens um, of useful fictions, right? You know, whenever it needs them. Um, by contrast, you know, I, I learned from Aaron whenever we began the project. Um, the, uh, the CCP's propaganda apparatus looks entirely different to readers. Um, you know, for the most part, um, you know, it kind of has a, you know, a, a somewhat threatening tone. It's sort of, you know, overwhelmingly effusive. Um, and can you, know, the, the question that initially motivated the project is why, you know, why are these two propaganda apparatuses, um, so fundamentally different, right? And, you know, why did they, um, you know, why did they tell, uh, their citizens such different things? So that's kind of where the where the the idea for the book began.
2: No, that makes a lot of sense, um, and I think introduces a bunch of threads that we'll now sort of pull at through the rest of our conversation. Um, the first kind of being the answer to that question. Can you walk us through the theory that you propose in the book to explain autocratic propaganda?
1: Yeah, of course. So, you know, so, you know, again, the, the core of the book is trying to understand um, why the world's autocrats employ such different propaganda strategies. So, you know, at, at least anyways, um, you know, our intuitions, you know, from, from Congo and uh, from China had, um, had sort of you know, initially led us to believe. And, you know, our, our basic answer is that uh, the world's autocrats use propaganda for different reasons based on the electoral constraints that they confront, right? And so we kind of think of electoral constraints broadly, right? As sort of the the extent to which um, autocrats are um, bound to um, the preferences of their citizens, right? Um, In, you know, in some autocracies, think, you know, think again, uh, China um, governments, you know, are essentially able to tilt the electoral playing field virtually unlimited, right? Or uh, in a virtually unlimited way, um, their capacity for repression is so substantial. that They're generally not bound by, um, you know, by kind of popular support. By contrast, right in a place like the Republic of Congo, um, many of uh, of Africa's autocracies, um, governments sort of can tilt the electoral playing field only to a degree, right? And this may be for you know a range of reasons. Perhaps they're more bound um, to uh, kind of abide nominally democratic institutions as a result of international pressure. Um, they may be particularly vulnerable to international pressure given uh, reliance on you know on, on aid um, from foreign sources. You know perhaps they confront they confront vibrant civil societies. Um, they're able to kind of compel them to um, uh, to kind of uh, to sort of you know abide uh, electoral outcomes. And so anyway, so we sort of think of the world's autocrats. As existing on this continuum, right, from essentially entirely unconstrained um, by uh, by uh, by elections, um, by kind of popular will, and on kind of the other spectrum, potentially quite constrained, right. So again, think um, Africa's post Cold War autocracies. So anyway, so that's kind of the, our starting point. Then, you know, secondly, we also think of uh, politics in the world's autocracies as being. Um, Kind of fundamentally uncertain right And in particular we kind of think of um, citizens as having two sources of uncertainty the first is uncertainty about uh, the regime's performance right to what extent it's providing public goods to what extent it's uh, um, you know sort of making making a good faith uh, good faith effort to advance living standards and then the second broad source of uncertainty that citizens have is about the regime's capacity for oppression right and this is something you know whether, um, you know how effectively the regime will be able to employ um, uh, repression in the case of you know, some kind of um, uh, popular mobilization, right? Protests in the streets. Anyway, so you know, citizens are uncertain, potentially about both of these two things. And in our view, uh, the world's autocrats use propaganda broadly to um, to shape citizens' beliefs about kind of both of those sorts of uh, both of those sources of uncertainty. if helpful. I'm happy to kind of go through um, kind of the world of kind of non-binding electoral constraints uh, in, uh, say, the case of China. Um, So we, so you know, we sort of think of you know the world of non-binding electoral constraints um, as uh, autocrats having kind of an incentive to make this capacity for repression common knowledge among citizens. Um, And so you know, there are you know, obviously there are lots of ways. Um, that uh, you know the world's repressive governments can kind of signal their capacity for repression. You know, obviously, you know, repressing citizens is you know obviously a um, a good signal, right? But repression is costly. We know, for instance, that um, whenever autocrats repress citizens, um, that kind of uh, the anniversaries of those kinds of large-scale human rights abuses end up being focal moments for popular protests in the future, right? We also know that repression can elicit a backlash effect potentially, um, you know, and kind of, you know, create more popular frustration than perhaps, um, it suppresses. Anyway, so, so, which is all to say that repression is potentially costly. And so in many cases, the world's autocrats prefer to use kind of a a less costly, a uh, signal of their capacity for repression. And this is how we think of propaganda in the world of non-binding electoral constraints, right? So in a, in a world like, you know, uh, say Xi Jinping's China, uh, Uzbekistan um, is another good example. We show that their uh, sort of use of propaganda basically is like absurd. They're just kind of the, the word that we use in the book, right? So they, they broadcast information that citizens know is false, Right? And in so doing, because citizens know it's false, the regime is effectively telling them, telling everyone all at once, that the regime's survival doesn't really depend on their support, right? But rather on the capacity of its repressive apparatus to suppress them. So, again, so we think of, um, in this case, you know, propaganda in the world's most repressive autocracies as a signal that uh, the regimes survival doesn't really rest on citizen support but instead on the capacity of its repressive apparatus then you know in the world where um, electoral constraints are more binding, so again think like uh, the Republic of Congo um, other uh, many of Africa's post-cold War autocracies in this case the regime's incentive you know because of these binding electoral constraints because the regime is um, to a greater extent you know kind of bound um, you know, is forced to be responsive to citizens, this has kind of broadly two effects. First, it you know, compels them to provide you know, some amount of public goods to citizens, right? And it also kind of compels them um, to kind of use the propaganda apparatus to curry popular support. And we kind of think of you know, these two effects is kind of broadly consistent, right? So whenever uh, governments are forced to provide some degree of public goods, Right, then that gives them the opportunity to mix fact and fiction, right? So governments can essentially exploit the presence, exploit the fact that they provide public goods sometimes, right? To use the propaganda apparatus to foster uncertainty about about bad news and policy failures, right? Um, So we think of this as as uh, as uh, as honest propaganda, right? So persuading citizens of regime merits requires occasionally conceding policy failures. Conceding policy failures is costly, right? Because it provides a potential focal point for protests um, and queues. But nonetheless, you know, know, in the world where electoral constraints are more binding, uh, we think of honest propaganda, right? So again, sort of mixing fact and fiction um, is an investment uh, in making sort of actual propaganda work to some extent.
2: Wow, that was impressively comprehensive um, going through all of that theory. Uh, Thank you for laying it out so clearly um, and giving me a number of things, obviously, to ask you to give us examples about because the book is not just theory. The book has a whole bunch of data in it. Can you tell us about what data and empirical methods you used after laying out this theory to then test it in real life?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so we, uh, you know, it was, so, you know, so obviously you know, we kind of came to this, uh, you know, theory over a series of lunchtime conversations based on uh, our experiences in China and Central Africa. Um, but, you know, it was important to us, um, you know, empirically um, to subject the theory to, you know, kind of as much scrutiny as we possibly could. So we collected what we think is the world's largest um Archive of propaganda and autocracies. Um, So our uh, our corpus of uh, propaganda encompasses somewhere around seventy newspapers from about sixty five countries, and in some about eight million kind of uh, discrete uh, pieces of propaganda. Um, We work in six of the world's uh, major languages. Uh, Obviously, English. uh, You know, we're, we're both native speakers. Uh, French, Spanish, Russian, uh, Arabic, and then Mandarin as well. Um, and so finally, our, our total um, corpus of propaganda comprises about eighty eight percent of the world's uh, population that lives under autocracy. So anyway, so, so we think that this is, you know, as sort of, uh, you know, encompassing a collection of, of propaganda um, as, is, as has ever been assembled
2: it is pretty comprehensive um, just from that list alone of the languages. So we now have the theory, we've got this massive data set to play with. Um, What then did you find in terms of autocratic propaganda? I mean, that's kind of, I guess, the big picture question for the next few questions underneath it. So if we take the theory and the data and put them together and we look at just kind of one piece of that test, I'd love you to tell us about um, the fall of the Berlin Wall and what we can learn from looking at that.
1: Yeah, of course. Actually, so so maybe I can back up just kind of you know just um, you know a thought or two. Um, so so you know once we kind of you know amassed this collection uh, of propaganda. Then we first had to figure out how to measure it, right? So, I mean, so so obviously, you know, there are a number of empirical contributions in the book. You know, one of which was collecting this data. But then, you know, obviously, you know, there is a question of precisely, you know, how, we, how we go about measuring propaganda. Um, and so, so we kind of do this in kind of two broad ways. Um, first, we we wanted to focus on uh, kind of um, pro regime propaganda somewhat narrowly construed, right? Um, sort of focusing more on, on the incumbent, the ruling party. And so in this set of 8 million propaganda uh, articles, we um, used a, a series of uh, natural language processing techniques to basically identify every reference to the incumbent and the ruling party. And we're able to do so with roughly ni- uh, 85 to 90% accuracy. And then for every one of those references, in every one of those articles, Um, we measure the positive and the valence of the words immediately surrounding the reference um, with uh, a series of tools from computational linguistics. In particular, there's something called called the Harvard General Enquirer, which kind of basically um, kind of categorizes languages into sort of, or categorizes words into positive uh, and negative valence. Anyway, so then we kind of measure the valence of those, of the words immediately surrounding uh, every reference. And we sort of think of this as, Reflecting um, our view of propaganda, and I think you know a view that's pretty widely shared, which is that propaganda should be should be thought of as spin kind of, rather than rather than lies. And then, kind of the, but the second way we set about measuring pro regime propaganda um, is uh, you know it reflects the possible or reflects the notion that it's sort of you know unclear whether we should think of pro regime propaganda um, you know as focusing exclusively on um, the you know the the executive the ruling party, or whether we should also think of um, pro regime propaganda as kind of encompassing kind of broader government action, right? You know, so to some extent, um, you know, this um, kind of you know reflects some uncertainty about you know kind of like what the regime is, right? If we're trying to set out to measure pro regime propaganda, anyway, and so so we um, so this you know this kind of um, I suppose, you know, this sort of uncertainty as you know, to sort of, you know, how encompassing we should think of the regime as being leads to our second way of measuring pro-regime uh, propaganda, which is by using um, something called multilingual topic model. So this is kind of a branch of um, machine learning uh, where we're essentially able to kind of train the computer um, to identify uh, whether a given article, you know, in a given language from a given country on a given day references government action by you know at sort of any branch of the government and we're again we're able to, to identify <coughs> content um about government agents at kind of any level with about 90 percent accuracy and so the the broad result of the book is that as electoral constraints grow more binding right so think again as you know as we kind of move from the world of xi jinping's china and uzbekistan uh, under especially islam Karimov to say uh, Central Africa's autocrats, um, that the effusiveness of pro regime propaganda declines pretty markedly. Um, so you know, then I so, you know the question is like, well, you know how uh, how marked is the decline in effusiveness? Right. I mean, so we have assembled you know all this data and we you know try to figure out or we try to propose a way to kind of quantitatively measure um, the effusiveness of pro-regime propaganda across countries, right? But then, you know, how do we kind of convey, uh, you know, say like uh, one measure, or how do we convey um, kind of the magnitude of that decline? So in the book, um, we propose, um, or we kind of scale our measures of propaganda, uh, you know, using a partisan media outlet that we think many readers will have a pretty intuitive sense for. Um, And that is uh, Fox News. In particular, we propose something called uh, the Fox News Index, right? So we we compute um, the valence of Fox News' coverage of Republicans uh, over about a six-month period, and I think this was 2019 or, 2018, 2019. Um, And then we computed the valence of its coverage for Democrats. And we take kind of the, the difference in that valence, and that then becomes our Fox News index, right? And so what we find um, is that state-affiliated newspapers, I'm sorry, here, let me back. So what we find is that um, state-run newspapers and more constrained autocracies so again, think you know, uh, think Russia before the Ukraine invasion. Um, think uh, autocracies in, you know, in Central Africa after the Berlin Wall fell. The difference between um, state and be- kind of pro regime coverage um, in state uh, in state newspapers and constrained autocracies is about one unit of our Fox News Index more pro regime than uh than coverage um, of the government and state affiliated newspapers and democracies. Right? So we sort of think of, you know, like uh you know again um the propaganda apparatus in Vladimir Putin's Russia before the Ukraine war. I'm sure that you know after the Ukraine war my sense is that censorship has expanded, repression has expanded, and propaganda has has increased as well. Um but you know kind of roughly that difference is like Equivalent to the difference in how Fox News covers Republicans relative to to Democrats. Um, In a place like Xi Jinping's China, we find um, that uh, the propaganda apparatus covers the regime roughly four times more positively um, than Fox News uh, covers Republicans relative to to Democrats. Right. And so anyway, so there's a lot of evidence that Fox News is, is quite persuasive. Um, which is, you know, know, again, kind of what we would expect, right? Um, Xi Jinping's propaganda apparatus is effusive. It doesn't really aim to persuade readers, but instead um, to intimidate them. By contrast, propaganda apparatus is in a world of more binding electoral constraints, roughly similar to how Fox News covers Republicans relative to to Democrats, which was... uh, And and Miranda, remind me, your question was about... um, uh, China and China and Gabon right Our,
2: now that we've laid out kind of how we're doing all this which is really helpful um how do we then see this in a particular instance of the fall of the Berlin Wall and how Gabon versus China talk about that
1: yeah yeah of course um so uh, so so you know we obviously want to take um, threats to causal inference you know as as seriously as we can right and so one you know one potential critique of the theory and of kind of the baseline statistical results <clears throat> is that you know maybe it's not you know uh binding electoral constraints that is kind of you know causing less propaganda right so you know, but maybe instead um you know propaganda is you know actually um kind of loosening electoral constraints right so maybe then the argument is that um, you know, so again, so if this kind of reverse causality is is the case, you know, maybe you know, maybe it's the case, um, you know, that um, you know governments that employ more propaganda, uh, you know, are able to sort of you know, make their electoral constraints less binding. And so, to the in the book, the way that we um, try to rule out uh, the the reverse causality possibility um is to exploit or a, a rapid exogenous change uh to electoral constraints in you know in, in a large set of countries um and you know kind of one um to us kind of the, you know the most uh substantial kind of rapid exogenous shock to electoral constraints was the was the collapse of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989 right so the you know the collapse of the Soviet Union uh the fall of the Berlin wall unleashes a third wave of democracy um, you know this is felt obviously uh, across Eastern Europe, but no less in sub-Saharan Africa, right, where, um, uh, where proxy wars uh, during the Cold War basically served to, to prop up client governments of both, um, of both Moscow and Washington. Anyway, so if one were to look at <coughs> um, a map of uh, political institutions across the African continent in, say, 1985 relative to 1995, you know, obviously, many of the continents autocracies collapsed whenever the Berlin Wall fell. But virtually all that survived were essentially forced to govern with nominally democratic institutions, right? With term limits, uh, constitutions, regular elections, opposition parties, you know, some amount of media freedom, etc., you know, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, so you know, it's it's difficult to get um, you know propaganda that extends back uh, to you know to the 1970s, 1980s before you know before the berlin wall fell before the third wave uh, was unleashed Um, but for two countries it turns out we we were able to find this data excuse me the first um is gabon and the second uh is ccp is ccp china um and uh anyway so we use you know a series of um statistical techniques to show um to to show first that there's a sharp discontinuity in the propaganda strategy, uh, so, you know, in the level of pro regime propaganda that the Gabonese government used before the Berlin Wall fall, before the uh, the Berlin Wall fell, relative to after, right? So um, so if you were to look at you know, our measures of pro regime coverage uh, in you know, in the Gabonese propaganda apparatus, you know a year or two before the Berlin Wall fell. Far different than um, than uh, than the nature of regime coverage after, and so then we use something um, called a Bayesian change point model. So we we know that there's a discontinuity in its propaganda strategy, and so then we use something called a Bayesian change point model to help isolate like when precisely the propaganda strategy changed, right? So so we can, in particular, we can sort of pinpoint. Uh, or we can use a statistical model to, to pinpoint the month when the Gavanese government's propaganda strategy changed, and you know precisely as you know as our theory would expect. You know, again given our focus on electoral constraints, um, the statistical results suggest uh, that the propaganda strategy most likely changed uh, during the month of the first multi-party elections um, since 1967, and then perhaps secondarily. Um, I should say that was in September 1990. Secondarily, you know, this strategy could have also shifted maybe around March 1990, which was when um, uh, the Japanese government called a national conference to basically kind of you know outline um, the set of democratic reforms. Anyway, so so, it, so as I said, the second country for which we have uh, propaganda data that extends back decades is uh, is CCP China. In this case, I think it actually we have data that goes back to 1946. Um, and you know, and precisely as our theory would expect, we basically observed no change um, in CCP China, which you know, again, CC, uh, you know, CCP China wasn't wasn't exposed um, to uh, <clears throat> um, the uh, to kind of this rapid exogenous shock um, that uh, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, at the end of the Soviet Union, basically represented in Gabon.
2: That is a fascinating example um, to understand kind of how the theory and the data and all the analysis comes through. So thank you for taking us through that one. Um, that obviously is kind of one type of news, right? The idea, as you said, of the massive shock, the potentially existential shock, but that doesn't come up that often. Much more frequently, um, any government has to think about for example economic and public goods and how those are going to be covered in the news how does autocratic propaganda work on those topics
1: yeah so we um, so let's see we show that you know the rate of um, kind of coverage that uh, you know explicitly focuses you know on a regime across propaganda you know, across propaganda apparatuses is is actually pretty you know pretty low right you know uh, say 10 15 20% not really that high right by contrast um, just five topics like e- the economy politics sports um, and then you know uh, international news international kind of diplomacy those five topics account for roughly 80 to 85% um, of uh, all coverage in the world's propaganda apparatuses, right? So so yeah, so you know, focusing on um, you know propaganda is, is much more than simply pro-regime coverage, right? It's also it's also narratives that you know, that we think of as kind of constituting um, the first draft of, of a country's history. Um, so so in the later chapters of the book, we basically use our kind of core theory of um, autocratic propaganda. To try to understand variation in narratives and propaganda narratives um, that the world's autocrats employ and so you know one that you know we sort of think of as particularly salient um, is is coverage of the economy of you know public goods think um think like education uh, health etc um one of my favorite examples of the book is uh contrasting um how uh, propaganda apparatuses in Central Africa, relative to the Chinese propaganda apparatus, uh, covered uh, the government or their government uh, economic policies during shocks, right during crises. So, you know, for for the Republic of Congo, the obvious economic crisis um, are uh, you know is the fuel shortage, are the fuel shortages that citizens. Uh, confront more often than one would imagine, you know, given the government status as uh, Africa's fourth leading oil producer, um, and for the Chinese government, um, the global uh, financial crisis um, kind of constituted you know, a, a similar sort of economic shock, right? That kind of undermined um, the government's claims or you know, potential claims to performance legitimacy, and and you know, so so again exactly as as our theory would suggest. Um, We show that when uh, governments that confront electoral constraints, so again, thank, you know, thank Congo, whenever those governments confront economic crises, um, you know, they, they, they sort of fully acknowledge in the citizens um, and they they include examples that, you know, would sort of, you know, from the, from afar, one would think of as, you know, sort of likely um, to elicit even more popular, you know, popular frustration, right, to kind of make the government's failure is common knowledge. So, uh, you know, so one excerpt of um, you know, a propaganda article uh, from Congo during a during a fuel crisis uh, was sort of recounting how citizens were lining up early in morning, early early in the mornings, um, you know, to try to get fuel, which you know, for the price of which was skyrocketing, right? So, anyway, so the the government kind of fully acknowledged um, the depth of the crisis. I mean, of course, it you know also you know emphasized. Um, the government's uh, attempts to rectify the crisis, but it also acknowledges the government's um, so far its inability, um, or, you know, its inability to do so. By contrast, uh, the People's Daily, uh, which is the, the flagship propaganda newspaper um, for the CCP, uh, you know, it's so it, the tenor, the kind of the balance of its um, economic coverage actually increased. During the global financial crisis, which is to say that you know the government covered the economy even like more positively during the the global financial crisis than it did before, right? Which is sort of you know it, again you know in in our view a way of um, sort of telling citizens that the government's survival doesn't really rest on their support, but instead on its acquies- uh, instead on their acquiescence, right? Instead on its um, on its capacity for repression.
2: I think the particular example you mentioned of. Um, f- covering things more positively during the financial crisis was absolutely fascinating to read. Yeah,
1: it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty striking when we, um, when we found it. This
0: episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, You mentioned kind of the big categories of topics that are covered. Um, Obviously, the economy is one. Can you tell us about sports and how that turns up in autocratic propaganda?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it turns up—it turns up actually pretty frequently. Um, you know, roughly twenty percent of all coverage um, you know, across the world's autocracies is allocated to sports. I should say, you know, by contrast, if one were to look at independent newspapers across the world, um, there's aren't a focus of this book, but we've um, but we've looked at some uh, in in other related work. The share of sports coverage is much lower, and and you know, we think of this. You know, we think of, you know, of sports coverage. As to some degree, potentially like a loss leader, right? In the sense that um, you know, propaganda is effective when it's consumed, right? And so, um, providing sports uh, coverage, right? Things that people want to read um, is a you know is a way of attracting readers. Um, and I should say that you know we we discovered that the world's propaganda apparatuses uh, include you know lots of other general interest things. Um, horoscopes were you know were were, were uh, one particular. Uh, favorite um, dating advice, uh, you know, relation, relationship advice, um, et cetera. Anyway, so we sort of think of um, these you know, across autocracies as um, you know a way to um, kind of you know ensure that uh, to attract readers to ensure that propaganda you know is consumed. Um, so, so anyway, so that's kind of the, the first way that we that we think of sports coverage, right? It's sort of providing information that citizens want to consume, the better to you know to um, to uh, expose them um, to propaganda. Um, <clears throat> but you know, so you know, again, you know, our, our basic theoretical prediction is that um, you know in constrained autocracies, sports coverage should be uh, subjected to the same kinds of um, you know, admissions of bad news and policy failures that um, that uh, governments are forced to make in other, uh, in other aspects of their coverage, you know, in, in the coverage of the economy that we just talked about. So, for instance, um, uh, Uganda's uh, Yoweri Museveni, um, you know, again, you know, one of the continent's, you know, longer, uh, longest-standing autocrats, but, you know, again, who has been... Um, Who's relied on Western governments for development aid, for debt relief, and, you know, in some cases for weapons, and so you know this kind of reliance, um, you know, to some extent, constrains his ability to repress citizens, right? And so we, you know, we think of this as, you know, we think of him as being, you know, somewhat more constrained than, um, you know, than other autocracies. you mean, anyway, so you know, so in, in his propaganda apparatus, which I should, sh- I should say, um, was uh, was run by. Um, a British citizen whose diaries, you know, actually, you know, look whose diaries read as though um, they were taken from the theory chapter uh, of, of our book, somewhat remarkably. Um, anyway, so his propaganda apparatus is you know, apparatus. You know, kind of covered. Um, you know, the government's failures to invest in Uganda's national sports teams. Um, you know, whenever, whenever the Uganda national soccer team, for instance, fails to dance in the African Cup of Nations. Um, it's the journalists uh, and its propaganda apparatus lay the blame heavily at the government's failure, um, you know, to to invest enough. By contrast, you know, in uh, in autocracies um, that are less constrained uh, by electoral institutions, um, who were fully able to secure themselves with repression. Um, coverage of sports is you know as effusive and as absurd, um, you know as, uh, the CP, as the CCP's coverage um, of the global financial crisis, right? So you know, think of the dictator being cast, um, you know, as the the champion of national sports teams. There's one article um, from uh, from the Gambia under Yaya Jamma, which is uh, you know, again you know at the time um, until he was toppled in like 2017 among the world's most repressive governments um there was uh you know one really great article <laughs> great is there in square qu- in scare quotes i should emphasize but um one article where um uh you know one um uh one uh one of the country's athletes basically ended up sort of, you know crediting crediting the dictator um for uh for his personal accomplishments uh on the uh, on the athletic field anyway so anyway so sports coverage um, ends up being you know as effusive as the rest of the coverage uh, where electoral constraints are non-binding but subject to the same kind of you know admissions of uh, bad news and policy failure failures uh, as 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 economic coverage as well thank
2: you for taking us through that um again kind of a really interesting look at something we may not expect to see or kind of have thought of maybe initially, um, but really does demonstrate kind of exactly what you've been talking about. Um, Moving to a different topic covered, but again, kind of within the same general idea of the theory being proved in real life, is um, why do autocrats, I I honestly was kind of surprised by this, why autocrats seem to spend a lot of time talking about kind of how good they look internationally? how much they cooperate with other countries, even countries that like they may not like that much w- Why is this such a thing
1: yeah so so it turns out so we sort of think of um international we sort of think of you know there being kind of two broad varieties of of international coverage um in propaganda apparatuses and, and again you know international coverage <coughs> kind of roughly accounts for somewhere around um you know, twenty, say to thirty percent of all coverage uh, in in the world's propaganda provinces, right? And so then, the, you know, then the question is, you know, kind of, you know, how is how is how is international coverage shaped by the kinds of political institutions, um, you know, that that we really focus on in the book? So we think of international cooperation as um, uh, you know, the government, a uh, government's efforts to uh, engage international, in, engage internationally, right? So think diplomacy. Think foreign affairs, um, etc., and we find that this international cooperation coverage um, is dramatically different uh, across autocracies. So think, um, you know, governments that are uh, more constrained by electoral institutions. The government is is cast as working with international partners uh, to address vaccine shortages. Which is, which to my mind, is, is a great example insofar as it kind of reflects both um, the government's, you know, efforts at, at you know, international cooperation, but also the extent to which the government hasn't yet ameliorated the same vaccine shortages as well. Right. Um, anyway, so governments that you know that they, they confront <clears throat> um, these sorts of binding electoral constraints cover these partnerships to um, you know to, to improve quality of life. Um by contrast, uh, one of my favorite examples um, is Uzbekistan in particular under Islam Karmov, um, who died uh, a few years ago, again, one of the world's most oppressive governments. Um, the propaganda apparatus made a habit of printing letters of congratulation from foreign governments immediately after elections, right And so the you know the the, these letters from foreign governments are kind of noteworthy for two reasons. First, the identities of the foreign governments. Um, you know, there, are, you know, there are sort of you know, putative letters uh, you know, from the world's great powers, right, who are then kind of cast as, uh, as supporting the Karmov government, which we think of as a, you know, as a signal to citizens that the international community isn't going to come to their aid you know, if mass protests emerge, right? Anyway, so these letters are, you know, the congratulatory letters, striking for you know for the for uh, the identities of their senders, but also for the breathlessly effusive terms, um, you know that uh that the senders are you know are said to have used. So one in particular uh, was from um, Barack Obama. I have I, I can't imagine that it was that it was authentic. I mean, it's just um you know it was like so profoundly effusive, you know, uh, in terms of kind of trumpeting. Um, you know Obama's regard for you know for for Karmov um, that you know it was just uh, yeah I mean it, 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 at, at some point so we, we wanted to do like FOIA requests you know to to verify whether um, you know actually you know the the Barack Obama government had sort of, you know ever sent um, such a you know such an absurd letter uh, to Karmov um, but anyway so we think of them as sort of basically you know a way of um, communicating to governments. Uh, you know, or communicating to citizens that the international community won't come to their aid. You know, in case, um, you know, in case they, uh, they come out into the streets um, in defiance of this sort of, you know, obviously fraudulent election.
2: I cannot imagine. Like, what would you even fill out in that form? Like, what would you say in that request? Please help us verify this ridiculous idea. Like, like, I yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, yeah. So so, and I should say, so we um we Right. So, um, so propaganda apparatuses, you know, of, you know, especially repressive governments actually do this quite frequently. Um, so again, the Karmov propaganda apparatus um, would publish sort of testimonials from Western visitors, you know, from, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, a sensible, you know, professors of foreign universities. Universities, you know, in in America, the UK, elsewhere in Europe, that you know kind of trumpeted, you know, the Karmov government's sort of you know political model. I think it the Uzbekistan model of development. And anyway, so we tried to, you know, to 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 track down, you know, professors, you know, and sort of you know other policymakers, you know, that were that were quoted in you know in the propaganda apparatus. Uh, and we were we were never able to do so. Anyway, so we're um, yeah. We think that uh, there's a lot of um, we think there's you know <laughs> there's a lot of uh, uh, creativity of you know falsifying falsifying foreign testimonials, um, you know, and in propaganda apparatuses and, and you know, in the most repressive uh, in the most repressive environments.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, something I'd like to ask is less about kind of topic covered then um, you talk about the propagandist's dilemma, capitalized letters for each of those two words. Um, what do you kind of mean by this?
1: Yeah, yeah, this is a great question. So, so we think of the propagandist dilemma as something that um, uniquely confronts propaganda apparatuses um in the presence of more binding electoral constraints right and so again you know in the presence of binding electoral constraints our view of propaganda is that um you know governments are forced to mix fact with fiction right they're forced to concede bad news and policy failures to gain some kind of credibility right some amount of credibility to manipulate citizens beliefs kind of during moments of crisis right to manipulate citizens beliefs when they really need to, and, you know, and again, then more constrained autocracies think, you know, again, potentially, uh, you know, Putin's Russia before Ukraine, think, um, Africa's post-cold war autocracies and the, you know, the key moment of uncertainty, kind of the key moment of political tension is around election seasons, right? Election seasons, of course, are, are recurrent, right? Um, you know, and, you know, and so, you know, again, as, you know, as long as citizens know that, you know, the author of the propaganda is its chief beneficiary, then, you know, they may be inclined to discount it, right? You know, especially when there's, especially when, you know, the propaganda apparatus clearly has incentive you know, to manipulate beliefs around election seasons. And so in one of the chapters in the book, we try to figure out, you know, exactly how, you know, how. Governments resolve this dilemma, right? And so, and so again, we think of this as <clears throat> as the propaganda dilemma. I mean, how to you know how to manipulate citizens' beliefs to some extent when they're expecting the regime to do so. Um, you know, so again, you know, one of the chapters um, focuses on that, and and um, so there we we combine um, you know again our, our data across countries uh, with with again you know our our field research. Uh, in central Africa and and in Congo in particular, one of the things that that we show is, or so we document, um, propaganda spikes, right? Moments of, of increased pro regime propaganda relative to the rest of the calendar year. Right. Um, and you, we kind of define this, uh, you know, quantitatively in the book, but we essentially are able to show that virtually all of the increases in pro regime propaganda, um, in more constrained autocracies, occur around elections, which is sort of you know again consistent with our idea you know of um, elections as these moments of political tension, uh, of you know of political uncertainty you know when when the government most needs um, to spend you know the the credibility that it requires you know at other times of the year, um, and so then so again returning to, to this question right you know how to sort of you know how to manage the propaganda dilemma um, we show that um, you know is the the kind of grant we said that we showed a pro- few things actually first pro-regime coverage kind of very gradually increases um as election day approaches coverage of <clears throat> of the opposition um increases pretty markedly as well the government's critics or the opposition's criticisms of the government are covered extraordinarily faithfully so in some cases in uh, you, know, you know across um, Africa's autocracies, it's exceedingly common to find uh, on the front page of the propaganda newspaper the EU's <laughs> reluctance, or in some cases, in some cases even refusal to send election monitors for you know for concerns about the election's integrity. Um, also, you know the government kind of conceding uh, you know opposition um <clears throat> or covering opposition accusations. Um, of, <clears throat> excuse me, of harassment, of, uh, you know, of its campaign rallies being blocked, right? So anyway, so there's this really kind of like market, you know, markedly kind of even-handed coverage. This notion that, you know, the election could go either way, right? The game isn't yet played and we'll just have to see what happens. But then, you know, as, um, as election day approaches, uh, you know, the, the propaganda apparatus, you know, kind of cast itself as covering, you know, the size of campaign rallies, you know, for the opposition, you know, relative to, uh, you know, relative to the ruling party. And you know, then like very, very, very gradually, the the propaganda apparatus sort of cast itself as like updating its predictions uh, about the election's outcome, you know, based on, uh, you know, enthusiasm, based on the size of the rallies, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so there's this, it's sort of very, very clear um, You know that initially, you know the propaganda apparatus is trying to cast itself as like a very you know impartial arbiter of things. Um, But you know then as you know as sort of uh, enthusiasm, kind of differing rates of enthusiasm make themselves clear. Then it kind of pivots to uh, kind of preparing citizens um, to accept that uh, the elections outcomes kind of indeed reflect the will of the people. And I should say, you know, one tactic. Um, That is kind of particularly striking uh, is the extent to which um, certainly in, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, I'm I'm sure elsewhere, uh, autocratic governments kind of, you know, have puppet candidates that it kind of, you know, secretly finances behind the scenes, um, but that, you know, are these kind of like puppet opposition candidates, uh, you know, who then, you know, reliably you know, suggests that you know indeed the election has been fair; that they're willing to you know acknowledge the results. And kind of you know the, the key thing of this kind of you know, puppet candidate strategy is um, uncertainty about you know whether these candidates are actual puppets. Um, anyway, and so you know, propaganda apparatuses you know across uh, the set of African autocracies that employ these puppet candidates um, you know, tend to uh, to allocate them um, you know a pretty striking degree of coverage. At, you know, immediately before the election, right, and and then in you know, the immediate aftermath of the election, so, so sort of you know again kind of generate you know, some, you know, foster you know, some kind of uncertainty um, about uh, um, about the quality, about the integrity of the election. Anyway, so this is so that's kind of what we think of as the as the kind of the, the key propagandist dilemma, um, and it's uniquely acute, we think, uh, in the presence of more binding electoral constraints.
2: So. What about then if we go the other end of the spectrum, right? The autocracies that don't have election cycles to create propagandist dilemmas or kind of dictate what the propaganda calendar looks like. Is there a propaganda calendar in those sorts of cases?
1: Yeah, there's a, this. This too is a great question. There's absolutely a propaganda calendar. You know, in the, in some sense, you know, we need to be you know a bit more creative about what the chief moments of political tension are right and so um, one key moment of political t- uh, of political tension in the world's most repressive environments um, especially I should say you know <clears throat> whenever uh, you know in, in areas uh, where governments refuse to organize national elections there uh, in those spaces the key moments of tension, are often um, anniversaries, frequently of uh, failed protest movements or failed pro-democracy movements that the government suppressed. So think um, think CCP China, right? The rate of protest um, around the anniversaries of failed pro-democracy movements <coughs> uh, increases by about... 30 to 40%. The most obvious one uh, is the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, right, on on June 4th of every year, but there there are a number uh, of others uh, of these failed pro-democracy movements. The CCP knows, of course, that these, uh, these political anniversaries are sensitive, and so the rate of repression spikes as well, right? Now, you know, we, you know, we sort of, you know, we think of um, propaganda around these uh, these um, pro-democracy anniversaries as kind of, as driven by generally two considerations, and these are kind of you know, opposing dynamics. The first is that employing propaganda or potentially threatening citizens during these very sensitive anniversaries would potentially threaten them. You know, otherwise, um, you know, secure their acquiescence, right? Discourage, deter protests, right? So again, CCP China, you know, effusive pro regime propaganda, absurdly positive pro regime propaganda. This, you know, in our theory, is a signal of the government's capacity for repression. And so, a propaganda spike around a pro democracy anniversary would aim to discourage protests, right, by signaling the government's capacity for repression. Now, that is, you know, the kind of the the benefit to the government of propaganda. The cost, however, is that propaganda would draw attention to a moment that the government would prefer citizens forget, right? And so we sort of think of this as um, a tension between memory and forgetting, right? Um, And so the pattern that we find in the data is that most pro-democracy anniversaries in CCP China are, um, you know, witness the sort of, uh, the um, propaganda, I'm sorry, most pro-democracy anniversaries in CCP China elicit no response uh, from the propaganda apparatus, right? Which, Which again, you can think of, you know, as the government's interest, in facilitating a process of forgetting, right? But there's one politically sensitive anniversary. There's one anniversary of a failed pro-democracy movement that the government knows citizens won't forget, right? That you know has a sort of outsized role in the public consciousness. And this is the Tiananmen Square Massacre on, on June 4th, um, when uh, some you new know, 2,000 uh, citizens in, in Beijing um, were killed think these protests attracted at times some 10% of of Beijing's total population. So strikingly, what we find, um, during the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre every year, isn't really an increase in pro-regime propaganda. And, but instead coverage of its ongoing campaign of repression against the ethnic Uyghur population in Xinjiang, right? Which is, you know, kind of um, cast as, uh, you know, kind of a, a threat to ethnic Han interests. Um, you know, sort of, you know, cast as uh, uh, terrorists, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know, as as your listeners are probably aware, um, the CCP's campaign of repression against uh, the ethnic Uyghur population in Xinjiang um, now encompasses. Uh, a network of uh, detention facilities and has been um, uh, has been called genocide by by a range of mm-hmm. um, foreign governments and, and international institutions. Mm-hmm. So the this kind of the striking thing about this ethnic Uyghur coverage is the extent to which um, it uh, emphasizes the government's sort of capacity for repression, right? And so again, so we think of this as um, you know a, a way for the government. Um, you know, if it can repress uh, ethnic Uyghurs to the extent that it is, then you know, the government is sort of implicitly signaling to um, to the urban population in Beijing via its propaganda apparatus that if they ever um, challenge uh, the regime's survival, you know, in, in the way that you know has happened previously, that they too would be repressed in the same way. Hmm.
2: So that actually raises. Um... Uh, A question, obviously relevant to the CCP, but also more broadly, to what extent does propaganda discourage protest?
1: Yeah, so the the final chapter, I should say, the the penultimate chapter of the book um, addresses this, and so we 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 focus on, or we we ask, or we try to answer this question in in two broad ways. Um, The first uh, is by focusing on pro-regime propaganda, which, which, you know, again, we do in a cross-country setting, um, we find that um, pro-regime propaganda has a, has a pretty strong effect on reducing protest, but strikingly, we find that this effect decays over time. So, for instance, um, after uh, about, um, say, 15 days, something like half of the initial effect is, has gone, and, and by the time that you know, a month has elapsed, there's very little of, of the initial effect. But strikingly you know, this temporal signature ends up being very similar um, to political me- uh, political messaging um, in American politics right so you know so again you can sort of think of um, you know propaganda as a kind of political messaging and its effect on protest uh, you know, kind of the, you know it's um kind of the the persistence of its effect on protest actually looks a lot like political messaging um, in, in democracies then the other way we try to go about um, measuring the effect of protests you know, is sort of you know, again um, recognizing that the propaganda isn't really just about coverage of the regime, but you know, is also, in many cases, um, about explicit threats of repression. And so, uh, so again, we focus on CCP China, um, where uh, the government um, routinely uh, advertises um, a social stability, uh, you know, a harmony. Um, narrative, so social stability you know, being um, you know, kind of widely acknowledged as code for ensuring uh, the survival of the regime, um, and we show that uh, whenever um, the regime kind of uses uh, kind of social stability type code words, um, that um, that the rate of repression, uh, the rate of protest, uh, falls pretty dramatically. So, so our view is that um, you know propaganda, you know, is uh, is actually quite effective. Um, but for, you know, different reasons in, in different settings, right? Uh, you know, in, you know, the presence of kind of more binding electoral constraints, because it's shaping citizens' beliefs um, about uh, the, the compa- or, you know, about um, kind of the merits of the government. Um, but in, you know, in the absence of uh, binding electoral constraints, right, where, where uh, governments can fully secure themselves with repression, you know, our, our theory suggests that um through the... Um, uh, propaganda reduced protests because of the signal uh, of of the regime's repressive capacity.
2: No, that's really interesting, and um, thank you for explaining that. Before we get into kind of uh, a, a, a more even more direct linking between American politics and autocratic propaganda, I know that uh, the list experiments about China and the CCP that is included in the book may be of particular interest. Do we want to maybe talk about those a little bit?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So, you know, so, you know, so as I've mentioned, you know, we sort of think of propaganda as working through kind of two different channels, one, you know, more persuasive, uh, in terms of regime merits. The other is kind of a, you know, a signal of, of a regime's capacity for repression. Um, many scholars, you know, I, I should say in the are kind of in uh, many scholars have, um, have viewed propaganda as, as a way to kind of shape citizens beliefs about regime merits. Um, so, you know, so to some extent, you know the, um, uh, the our kind of causal mechanism, um, you know, linking or in terms of you know uh, in the world of non-binding electoral constraints, CCP China, right? Uh, you know, kind of pro, propaganda as signaling the regime's capacity for repression is, to some extent, we think a, you know kind of a much more controversial view, especially among scholars, um, you know, who view uh, the CCP as broadly popular. Based on direct question surveys, um, and you therefore view CCP propaganda as broadly persuasive about regime merits. So, if one were to um, you know just kind of you know, ask Chinese citizens you know, to what extent uh, they support the regime, something like ninety five percent of citizens you know routinely suggested they do you know, in direct question surveys. Um, you know, our view is that these sorts of direct question surveys are you know, pretty inappropriate in more repressive environments since citizens um, have incentives to falsify their preferences right to, to conceal um, to conceal their private dissent and so um, kind of one way that scholars have begun to try to elicit um, private beliefs about things uh, is something called a list experiment so the idea is that um, you know we'll kind of you know, divide uh, Respondents into uh, into two groups. One would be a treatment group, uh, and the other a control group. The control group would receive three uh, three nonsensical statements, and and are then asked how many of those statements they agree with, rather than which, right? And so you know, so they're you know they're given three nonsensical statements. Uh, you know, they'll say, oh, I agree with one, or I'll agree with two, or maybe even all three. Right, so they're you know they're they're expressing preferences over the number rather than you know kind of a, a direct preference about um, a statement. Then the treatment group would receive those same three non-sensitive uh, statements, but then also a more sensitive statement. In our case, whether they support Xi Jinping or whether they support the CCP, whether they support kind of, you know, broadly the system of government, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then, right? And so, and so then you will know, we'll ask them to to identify the number of statements with which with which they agree, right? Rather than you know do do you rather than are you willing to, you know, to to say that you support or that you oppose the CCP government, right? And especially you know in um, in a world of online surveys, right, where digital surveillance is a concern, we we think that you know this kind of anonymity um, is really really important. So what we find whenever. Um, we kind of use this list experiment technique Um, first is that support for the CCP is you know is far lower um, than uh, than scholars generally estimate via direct question surveys so direct question surveys return approval ratings of like 95% just using this list experiment technique returns estimates of like between 45 and 60% right which is sort of you know far far lower um, than what than what many people would believe but we then use LIST experiments <laughs> to try to um, you know, measure whether CCP pro-regime propaganda generates an increase in kind of pro-regime views among, uh, among respondents. And again, as our theory would suggest, we find there's no increase uh, or no evidence that pro-regime propaganda actually generates you know, more positive views about the CCP but that instead um, it uh, increases the share of of respondents uh, who say they would not protest because they fear state repression, right? Which is sort of, you know, again, exactly what our our theory would suggest. So so kind of most broadly, uh, you know, we think that using, uh, you know, survey experimental techniques that, you know, kind of uh, ensure or help convey, you know, a stronger sense of anonymity is really, really important. And whenever one does so, um, you know, in the most repressive environments, you know, then the effect of propaganda as conveying state rep- the capacity for state repression really tends to show up in the data.
2: Wow, thank you for taking us through that. I think that'll be interesting to a lot of people. Um, as my penultimate question, I'd love to stay on the topic of Xi Jinping for a moment, but also um, extend it. To the U.S., because in the book, one of the things uh, mentioned is that perhaps Donald Trump's use of rhetoric can be better understood by looking at Xi's strategy in China rather than the more common comparison with Putin.
1: Yeah, you know, so there has been, um, or you know, in in the wake of the the January sixth, twenty twenty assault on the U.S. Capitol. There was a lot of attention to um, you know, the notion of of a big lie, right? The, the big lie, and in, you know, in Trump's case, that um, the uh, the twenty twenty election uh, was fraudulent. But there have been other big lies, right? You know, there have been big lies, um, you know, that uh, the Orbán government in you know in Hungary has used to um, to justify um, his dismantling of democratic institutions. Similarly, you know the the law and justice party and Applebaum has covered in Poland. You have sort of also exploited a big lie, and you know Trump's big lies started you know started early. Whenever you know his press spokesperson you know referred to you know the crowds in the Capitol that attended his not his inauguration you know as being sort of you know larger than any had any that had ever been recorded. You even though there were you know sort of obvious photos. You know, showing, uh, you know, showing that that was obviously not the case, even relative to, you know, Obama's inauguration four and eight years earlier. Anyway, so, you know, so, so, you know, how should we understand these, you know, these big lies? We think of, you know, it, so it's increasingly clear that, um, you know, democratic backsliding occurs due to executive overreach, right? Whenever elected presidents attempt to dismantle um, the democratic institutions that, um, that brought them to power. Um, of course they need to get a sense for whether, um, their followers are, you know, are willing to, um, to go along with the dismantling of those democratic institutions, right. Or, or whether their followers will punish them for it. You know, and, and frankly, in American politics at the moment, you know, it's, it's not clear to what extent, um, you know, Trump will be punished. So we think of this, you know, we think of Trump's rhetoric, um, you know, in saying things that are obviously false, you know, as uh, you know, kind of conveying, um, you know, conveying to uh, to his supporters, you know, kind of gauging whether his supporters whether his supporters, um, you know, will will go along with his dismantling of democratic institutions, you know, whether they will, you know, to some degree, basically. Relinquish the truth, and so, so, you know, in thinking about kind of the magnitude of the lie, that lie has much more in common, you know, with how Xi Jinping's propaganda apparatus covers him, you know, than it does with how Vladimir Putin's propaganda apparatus covered him, you know, at least before the the Ukraine war. So we think that you know the the analog, the analog for, um, you know, for Trump's rhetoric, you know, is you know, and this kind of big lie, you know, the analog is Xi Jinping.
2: That's, I think, going to be an interesting lens for listeners to um, think about next time they read the news. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yeah,
1: especially given recent recent opinion polling in the US.
2: No, exactly. Uh, before I let you go, would you mind uh, giving our audience perhaps a sneak preview of what you and Aaron might be each working on now that this book is done?
1: Yeah, um, so we're, uh, we're finishing um, – second book projects, uh, at the moment. Um, so Aaron is finishing uh, a book on, um, the bilateral relationship, uh, between, um, Washington and Beijing. Um, the, the kind of the core idea is that, um, domestic, you know, kind of the, the domestic politics of the two sides, um, has long destabilized the bilateral relationship. So, um, in the case of, uh, Beijing, you think, um, you the government's incentives to to respond to economic crises that affect its elite, you know, its kind of core base of support. You know, by scapegoating the American government in the case of you know in the case of Washington, things into which you know you know members of Congress, due to you know largely to electoral concerns, you know, have resorted in the sort of China bashing that you know is sort of you know aimed at fostering support among among their constituents. Anyway, so so again, you know, the idea is that domestic politics destabilizes the bilateral relationship, and then the second half of the book she shows how um, the two governments have kind of therefore sought to uh, to change each other's politics uh, from the inside, um, and it, and so the book kind of uh, you know kind of charts uh, how effectively um, they've been able to do so. Um, I'm finishing a book on um, politics. Uh, in Africa's post-Cold War autocracies, it's increasingly clear that um, you know, the, the geopolitical environment is changing, right? Uh, you know, there's sort of, you know, obviously a lot of talk about um, a new Cold War, a rising China, um, potentially you know, a, R- a Russia that is becoming more active across the African continent uh, via the Wagner Group. Um, and so, you know, so as the, the geopolitical environment begins to kind of shift from the post-Cold War world Say that you know lasted between 1990 and say 2020. This seemed like the right time to kind of um, uh, for, to do kind of a um, an anatomy of you know how the continent's autocracies have worked during this 30 year period. And so that's the that's the book that uh, I'm finishing at the moment.
2: Both fascinating projects. Thank you for previewing them for us. Um, But of course, while you're finishing those both off, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Propaganda in Autocracies, Institutions, Information and the Politics of Belief, published by Cambridge University Press. Brett, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you.